Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter. As we continue to look at the destiny of the Christian, the destiny of the Christian, is, of course, is salvation, complete salvation. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Take your Bibles and look there, and follow along as I look at the Scripture, and I mention different Scriptures to turn to, so you uh, can see where I'm at. So we have been considering the first of the three major, major areas in First Peter. Salvation is the first one, submission and suffering. We're still on salvation. The last time we saw how trials play an an important part in the Lord shaping us and preparing us to live as foreigners and aliens in this world. I also mentioned that there are three parts uh, to this uh, uh, doxology, Um, and of course, we're at the second and third part. I already said that a doxology is a hymn of praise, uh, like... Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We just sang the song, Gloria in Excelsis Deo, which means glory to God in the highest. It's really a human being created in the image of God, verbally acknowledging God's rightful place and sovereignty and and honoring them with their own words. And then notice in verse number 6 of chapter 1, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Of course, uh, in what do you and I greatly rejoice? Well, we rejoice in everything that has gone before in our text uh, that gives us an indication that we are connected to our great salvation. And what are the things that we're to think about? We're to think about our great God, how awesome he is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. We are to think about our new birth, Uh, that we are now alive to God, and we are now able to serve and love him. We are to ponder our living hope. Uh, He has given us a new hope, and of course, remember, hope uh, means we have something quite grand to look forward to as believers, and then we are to consider the promise of our inheritance, safely kept for us in heaven, and us safely kept for our inheritance. So that means that our great God, the great God of mercy, ensures his children of the eternal validity of our inheritance that will never be polluted, never be subject to decay, and of course will never be destroyed because it's reserved for us in heaven, as the scripture tells us in verse number four. So I we have already considered the experience of the hope of our salvation. We have considered the problems of the hope of our salvation. And today we'll continue uh, to examine the prophetic and the angelic inquiries related to the hope of our salvation, that all this is really important to know before our minds can be fixed completely uh, on the present and future grace brought to us Uh, from the Word of God. 
which will prepare us ultimately to live a holy life, like, of course, the one who called us to be holy, the Lord himself, chapter 1, verse number 15, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And we're getting to that because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So today we are going to be looking at the hope of our salvation. And of course, that would mean that the prophecy that foretold the glory of the hope of salvation. And that would mean that we have a relationship to what the Bible says about our salvation. So that means the gospel of salvation should be considered by you because the prophets, the prophets were preaching and searching the scripture concerning your salvation. Now, look what it says in verse number 10. It says, as to this salvation, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, the prophets who prophesied, prophesied of the grace that should come to you, made careful searches and inquiries. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as I look at the Word of God, I pray that you would just press upon our heart, Lord, the greatness of our salvation, and that, Lord, some of the things that we need to consider because of what went on before us. And I pray, Lord, as we do that, we would realize that our salvation that we received in time has a long history before we ever knew about it. And I pray as we connect ourselves to that, we would realize not only the eternal eternal nature of salvation, but it should give us that hope that what God began long ago, he will finish, he will complete it, and we will have a complete salvation someday standing in the presence of God, holy and without sin. Oh, Lord, thank you for this hope we have. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the first thing I would like to just consider it in our text in verse number 10 is the whole, it says, as to this salvation, the prophets. What, what is a prophet? That's what I would like to say. Uh, well, from the Old Testament, what a prophet is, a prophet is someone who says, thus says the Lord. In other words, the Lord first speaks to the prophet Then the prophet turns around and speaks to the people. That's what his job. That means the prophet didn't study what he was going to say and then give it to the people. The prophet got direct revelation from God, and then he turned around and gave it to the people, and then he studied it. So there's a, in other words, there's a prior situation in each place a prophet would speak and God would give a message to the prophet concerning a particular situation. And God never gives a word to the prophet for the prophet himself, but he gives a word through the prophet often to the kings, often to the priests that are ruling over the people, and to the people of God themselves. See, God always speaks to his prophets for his people In other words, the words of a loving, living God to his people. God being involved with what's going on in the lives of his people. So God speaks when there is a problem amongst his people. Some crisis that happens, some issue, some need that arises amongst the people. So the whole prophetic ministry is a loving God 
meeting the needs of his people. God speaks direct revelation, but is occasioned by and related to a need among God's people. So if the people need food, God will speak about food. If the people need discipline, he will speak through the prophet about sin. If the people need hope, he will speak to the prophet concerning a future deliverer that would come. If the people need encouragement, he will speak about encouragement. If they need grace, then he will speak of a coming time of grace in the coming Messiah. See, that's what a prophet did, and that, that's what a prophet does. So now, when we look at this text in the New Testament, we see that a prophet really was a special kind of person that God set aside to bring a message to his people, in particular in certain sub, about certain subjects and certain issues, problems, or incidences. And so he wants to give his people hope in the message that they bring. Now, that brings me to the point about what, what does a prophet actually pursue? Well, if you look at chapter 1 and verse number 10, it tells us what a prophet pursues. It says the prophets uh, pursued what had been written about this salvation. Notice in verse 10 again, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, all right, the prophets who gave that message, it was about this salvation. What salvation? The salvation that we're talking about right here, the salvation that was way to come way in the future, and it was going to be focused in on a particular person and what that person had done. And of course, we know that person is Jesus Christ. Now, if you notice in our text, it says there that there are two terms used to uh, emphasize the efforts of the prophets that they actually used to find out what the scriptures meant. And it says in our text in verse 10, what do they do? They prophesied of the grace that would come to you. They made careful searches and inquiries. Now, the first word really means to search after something. The second term means to carefully examine something. In the second term, the word means to search as a lion or a dog does, following the scent of its prey. So when we put all that together, it gives us the picture that the Old Testament prophets were doing their utmost to hunt down the meaning of what had been written. Now, this salvation captured, captured their attentive minds, and of course, it captured the minds like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, just to name a few. So all the prophets were no doubt saved, yet the full understanding and enjoyment of the truth was actually reserved for us and not for them. So you and I actually live in the light of a finished message of salvation. If the fellowship of all the prophets that lived and died to study and to fulfill, uh, foretell this great salvation, if all the prophets pointed us to the Lamb of God, 
according to the best light given to them, foretelling the coming of the Redeemer, then how much more should we be careful not to be silent or careless with the message that we have in our hands? We have a whole Bible. We have a finished Bible. So we must stand up and actually rejoice that we have lived to hear the complete message of salvation. Now, you heard a passage like this, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation. Now, you may, if you know your Bibles, you may say, well, if I asked you where did that come from, you would say Romans chapter 10, verse 15. Well, it is in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, but it didn't come from there. It came from the prophets. Don't forget the apostles, when they preached, they did not preach the New Testament. There was no New Testament. They preached the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament contained the message of salvation. Now, if we go to Romans 10, verse 15, don't do that this morning. But if we go there, we'll find the same text there in Romans. And, of course, he will say in Romans, how will they hear without a preacher, right? How will anybody know about this great salvation that Isaiah the prophet spoke about unless somebody comes and preaches to them, right? And what is he going to preach? And that's when he says how beautiful, he says in Romans, are the feet of him who brings good news. Kind of changes it and adds words to it because of the, it is beautiful when you and I had someone come to us and shared the gospel with us about how our souls can be saved, how we can made, be right with God. That's the message. That is the greatest message your ears will ever hear. And then we have passages like this in Luke 24, where Jesus himself said, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So in other words, that the Old Testament was telling us about Jesus Christ way back when. See, Jesus Christ is in the Old Testament. And then John chapter 5, it says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. What? Moses wrote about Christ? Yes, he wrote about Christ. Now, here's the kicker. The kicker is the prophets got direct revelation from God, but did not mean, that did not mean that they comprehended everything. The prophets had to study and carefully search their own prophecies because they did not grasp it all at once. Matter of fact, many of the prophets did not grasp the whole message at all because it was not given to them to understand the whole message. That whole message would ultimately come, and they laid the foundation of that message that came directly from God. And what was the great need of the people? The great need of the people is that they needed to be saved. They needed to be made right with God. And you remember the law, the law only condemned them in their sin. The law was never developed or given to us to save us. The law was given to, to us to actually magnify our sin. So we would see our need and cry out for someone to save us. That's why it was given to us. In fact, 
If you notice in this passage of Scripture, in Luke chapter 10 on the screen, it says, even, it says, turning to his disciples, Jesus speaking, he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see when Jesus lived on the earth. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. And even today, once we have the New Testament complete and it's in our hands, we have the complete message of salvation and is started by prophets pursuing with diligent search about this salvation that we now know about very clearly in the word of God. So what's another thing the prophets do? Well, what, what did the prophets actually proclaim? Well, if you look in our text again, and I want to try to keep you in this text here, and then we'll be going to actually the book of Daniel. Uh, but in First Peter chapter 1, in verse number 10, what did they, the prophets actually proclaim? Notice again in verse number 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. All right? What did they proclaim? That's exactly what they proclaimed. They proclaimed grace. Now you say, well, what is grace? a good question. See, the prophets were filled with great desire for the arrival of the great period of grace. More than anything else, they desired to see that period themselves, but did not. See, the prophets were holy men chosen to be God's mouthpiece. And the prophets told us about this grace in past ages, and God's grace was to be to all people, to Jews and to Gentiles alike. It's to go to all cultures and groups of people all over the world. It's still going out. We still live in the age of grace. See, grace, the grace which comes from God in his mercy to man in his helplessness, the gospel, in other words, did not come to you asking something of you. But actually, the gospel comes to us with hands loaded with gifts more precious than gold, which is it freely gives to guilty people. It comes to us, the gospel comes to us not as a reward for the obedient and deserving. Nobody is obedient and deserving. But it comes to us as a merciful blessing to the disobedient and the undeserving. See, the gospel of God's grace asks no price, exacts no purchase. The Lord proposes to save you because you are miserable and he's merciful. Because you are in great need and he is a bountiful God and could meet that need. So here is the great thing about God's grace. It's everything for nothing. It is pardoned free. It's Christ free. It's heaven for free. Doesn't mean that it didn't cost God, but it costs us nothing. So there's nothing in our hands we could bring to get salvation. It's like the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 1. 
It says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. See, Isaiah was looking for a time where there would be so much of God's grace, he realized the only way to put it into words to say, you don't have to bring any money, you can't pay for it, it doesn't cost you anything, but you do have to receive it. It is a gift. A gift is something you have to receive, right? Somebody can bring you a gift and for this holiday, and if you refuse it, well, then you don't receive the gift. But you didn't have to pay for it. They didn't say, give me all the money, give your money, to, the gift costs 100 bucks, give me 100 bucks. No. Then it wouldn't be a gift, right? See, God is coming to us freely. And see, the prophets saw this. Now, was that not a good message when they were under the law? Yes, it was a great message. It was a message of, wow, there's hope for us. So what our text is getting at in Isaiah and is that salvation that God offers is so great and so attractive that to those who are willing to hear it, it's like the sound of a rushing stream to a thirsty man and to a convicted conscience. The message of free pardon is like a roadway in the wilderness that leads to life. See, that's what it's like. And that's what faith is. Faith is giving us the hunger to receive something from, from God because we know we cannot obtain it on our own. It cannot be worked for. It cannot be paid for. It has to be received free. Now, in saying that, I say this first to uh, the unsaved, that they would get some idea of the greatness and the value of this salvation and maybe be stirred up to seek it for themselves. See, for those this morning who have not come to Christ for salvation, that perhaps the Holy Spirit will show the preciousness of this salvation so you will no longer despise it, reject it, refuse it, or neglect it. It's like the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, that tells us this, for this reason we must pay, pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. And then he says this, for if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, then how much more in our day when we have the full revelation, right? In other words, if God in the past era, did not fudge on his justice and came down hard on people who received his word mediated by angels like Moses and the prophets, then how much more will God hold people responsible who shrink back from Christ and willingly repudiate the only way of salvation? Remember, Jesus is the last word from God. He's the last message to us from God. There's no other prophets from God, right? Jesus was considered prophet, priest, and king. He was a prophet, right? And yet, Hebrews gives us a warning in that. It's actually a warning question, and this is the warning question right here. How will we escape if we neglect this great salvation? How will we do that? See, if God now, through his Son, provided a greater salvation, 
and you neglect his final revelation and means of salvation, how will you escape? That's the, that's the question. Well, what, they, what that person will not escape is from God's justice. You see, it's, just a mat- it's not just a matter of, it, it, it is just a matter of, of not paying attention. It, it's, uh, you don't have to be hostile to the message of the gospel. You can just be indifferent. Or just be pra- pragmatic about it. Uh, and pragmatism would say something like, if, if, hey, if this thing you're doing with Jesus is good for you and works for you, then it, good, it works for you, but it doesn't work for me, so le- leave me be. See, that's what people say. That's a pragmatic way of looking at things. Or maybe they just don't feel they need Jesus. They, they never felt the threat of God's justice and the law upon them and the condemnation of the law, and so therefore, they're just not interested. Of course, we know they're dead in trespasses and sins, but the law does bear weight on the conscience to bring a person to see that they are under God's condemnation. Well, here's where the exhortation and warning should really claim your attention. If you neglect the only great means of salvation... To escape God's wrath, well, you'll stand alone to face God's justice. It will not be a matter then of how you escape or is is there a way of escape, but the cold, firm reality, there is no escape. Someday that will be the case. So if you are still in an unsaved, if you are still an unsaved hearer today, how great will your loss in missing this great salvation? Now a word to the saved. For the saved, you you should be more grateful for salvation, for salvation's benefits and your choice inheritance that's reserved in heaven for you. You should stand up more frequently and praise and worship God because a Christian can stand and declare, I've been saved by a great salvation from my God. My whole position has changed from one of being unsaved to one of being saved, from one of being condemned to one of being free from God's condemnation. In other words, a believer has moved from one place to another, from the place of not being a Christian to the place of becoming a real Christian and persevering right to the end in faith, hope, and love, by faith grasping the full salvation that God's given us in Christ Jesus. So yes, the prophets desire to study and to preach of this time of grace, and brethren, we're in it. We're still in this time of grace. So this is a very exciting time, prophetically, to live. And get it, you live now. You're living in a very exciting time. I'm living in a very exciting time when it comes to this message of salvation. It's still being preached, and it should be, be, should be still being preached by you to your families and to your friends, by myself. It should be being preached. But there's one, uh, several other things here, and it's this. What did the prophets ponder? What did they think about? Well, if you look in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, it says this. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So what did they ponder back then? 
Well, they pondered and they searched the scripture to find out what person is Isaiah talking about. They, they pondered the scripture and says, when, when's this going to happen? See, the prophets tried to search out what kind of period would be the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The word for time here is the word that means a period of time, a season of time. See, the prophets seem to be most concerned at this point about what kind of time, the situation these events would occur historically. In other words, not so much the duration of the period, but the distinctiveness of the, of the period. But yet they were concerned very much about the time when it would happen because they were asking the question, are we going to be alive when it happens? Because sometimes when you read Scripture, uh, both the first and second coming of Christ are right in the same passage of Scripture, right? Now, we know there's a division of time between the first and second, but they didn't. See, they didn't know everything that was going on, but we do. So, see, we're privileged characters when it comes to this. It was Habakkuk who said, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. See, the prophet Habakkuk let us know that it was going to be somewhere over here. It's not going to be now. Now, at this point, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel for a minute. I want to use Daniel because there's many prophets, can't go through all of them. I'm going to use Daniel, Daniel as a kind of a case study, right? And as you're turning there, let me just set up the context of what we're looking at in Daniel. He set his face to pray, to study while fasting, actually he fasted for 21 days, in order to seek God's plan concerning the salvation of the future and the nation of Israel. See, Daniel, toward the end of the Babylonian captivity, he was greatly concerned because the 70-year period of exile foretold by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29 was about to end. But what happened is that Daniel's looking at the historical situation. He says, wow, this 70-year period that Jeremiah tells about is about the end, but he could see no sign of the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. And he's getting, because he's searching the Scripture, he's getting anxious. And so at that point, he seeks God out in prayer, and that's when he found out from God's angelic messenger some of the rest of the story. And if you look at Daniel chapter 7, turn there first. Daniel 7, himself, he tells us that he was troubled by his visions of the four beasts, and he inquired of the angel what it meant. And notice in verse 15 of chapter 7, it says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions of my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. Now he begins to explain to him this particular prophecy that Daniel was now seeking out and the, the rest of the story, in other words. So Daniel really had no way of knowing what we know now. See, the final week of the seven years 
would be separated from the rest of the period of time by some 2,000 years, the duration of the age of grace, which we are still in right now. Now, look at Daniel chapter 9. So go right over to Daniel chapter 9 and look at verse 24 through 27. Now, look what it says in verse 24. It says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. That's the first coming. Second coming, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, Daniel didn't see the first and second coming there, but we know it, right, because we have the rest of the story. And then it says there, so you are to know and discern that from the, be- the issuing of a degree rest- to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. That's the crucifixion of the Messiah prophesied in Daniel. And having nothing, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even the end, there will be war, desolation are determined. Verse 27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many. Now, this we're talking about the Antichrist here. For one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. A lot of stuff there, but Daniel didn't understand it all completely. So Daniel still couldn't fully comprehend all the angel Gabriel revealed to him. So now turn to Daniel chapter 12. And now we kind of get the end of the conversation with Daniel. He's still full of questions. Right? So here's a prophet full of questions. And notice what it says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 6. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? Verse 7, I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. As soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Verse 8, as for me, this is Daniel, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And look at what the messenger said. He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. All right, so you can see that the prophets pondered something, right? And they pondered really the person and the time of the revelation, but they did not see these things. They did not see that the church age would be a time of the preaching of the gospel of grace. They he didn't see the rapture of the church, did not see, he did mention the great tribulation, but didn't understand fully that it would be this, uh, 
the sixth, the seventieth year of Daniel's prophecy. Daniel only understood it up to about the sixty-ninth year. He did not see the thousand-year reign of Christ, all right, and he did not see that uh, Satan would be released, and then the end would be the new heaven and the new earth. He didn't see those things, but you know what? We have it all right here in our Bible. See, we we know things that they did not know. You know that again, that makes us privileged characters. That makes our salvation so incredibly awesome that the prophets prophesied direct revelation but did not even understand fully their own message, but we do. At least we we have it so we can understand it. Not all of us give us give ourselves to study so we can understand the things that are difficult in Scripture, but we can if we give ourselves to it. So this brings me to the second, uh, in the, under the third point of the prophecy that foretold the glory of the hope of salvation, and it's this, that the gospel of salvation should be considered by you because the Spirit was predicting and leading concerning your salvation. Now, Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 11, I mean, excuse, chapter 1, verse 11, and notice what he says there concerning this. Now, if you notice what it says there, it's talking about your salvation. In verse 11, it says, verse number 11, it tells us this, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So in other words, This word indicating has to do with pointing to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit throughout the prophetic age. That from the first prophet right up to John the baptizer, to Christ, to the New Testament apostles and prophets, the Holy Spirit has been guiding and leading the message for us so it would not be messed up by human hands, but he superintended it and he superintended it for us so we can find out about the sufferings and the glories that would follow. That's what the Word of God tells us. Now, like a scripture like this in Isaiah, it says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. What glory did Isaiah see? He saw the glory of Messiah. And who did he speak of? He knew he was speaking about Messiah. And then we have a passage like in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. When they were in the wilderness wandering in the Old Testament, it says, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ, was Messiah. Jesus, through his spirit, was there with his people right in the beginning. And of course, a passage like Hebrews, where it talks about that great chapter on faith, where it says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for his reward. See, Moses knew that there would be a deliverer, that there would be a Messiah greater than him. He knew that. And he knew 
that by the Spirit. So then the Spirit of God was predicting through the Holy Prophets two stages in the time sequence of Christ's ministry. What's the first stage? He's going to predict, they're going to predict the sufferings of Christ, right? And see, when we got to the Gospel of Mark, the people had a hard time with the suffering Messiah. But they had a hard time with it is because they got away from the Old Testament scriptures. They got away from the messages of the prophets. When we looked at Mark, what did Mark say in Mark chapter 8? He began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. See, the Messiah must be killed by the religious and political system of his day. He also must be killed according to Scripture, according to the Old Testament sacrifices. He must die as the Lamb of God. He must be a sacrifice in accord with the Old Testament sacrifices. See, the sacrifice, which means substitution, Redemption by the blood of God's Son and the cleansing of the soul from guilt. That's what we were talking about. And then Isaiah chapter 52, what does it tell us about? It says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than any of the sons of men. We know that is speaking about Jesus Christ, where he would suffer, and to a point he would be beat, where his own appearance would be so marred by the beatings and the suffering. Isaiah was prophesying that about Christ seven, 800 years before it ever took place. See, they, they knew the punishment for sin before Almighty God, was death. And if Jesus was to save his people, it would be necessary for him to make full payment of their sin. See, that's what the prophets saw. But the prophets saw something else. They not only saw the sufferings, uh, the Spirit of God not only spoke through them to show them the sufferings of the Messiah, but also the glories that will follow. Right? That includes Christ's resurrection. Ascension, the exaltation, including the eschaton and the second coming of Christ. See, Mark says he must rise again. And if we look at a passage of Scripture like Psalm 16, verse 10, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow my Holy One to undergo decay. See, the body of Messiah could not lay in the grave and rot. It must rise from the grave. Just as the Old Testament says, death did not mark the end of Jesus Christ. On the third day, he rose from the grave. The prophets saw this great event, this great time happening. That means, brethren, that all these scriptures are saying to us, we have a privilege of knowing more than the prophets knew. That's awesome. But that also brings a responsibility. 
And the reason why is because we have full revelation, so we have no excuse. So we ought to actually, again, worship and praise God and rejoice with inexpressible joy, full of glory. But that brings me to the disappointment of the prophets. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 12, if you notice what it says there, their message was not their own, was not for their own time, but it was for the apostles' day, beyond right up to our day. If you notice what it says in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, that's the prophets, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, we're, a lot of things are going on there. We're, we're talking about apostolic ministry and preaching here. We're talking about the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God was poured out in that passage of Scripture. So Christians are experiencing what the prophets long to see. Just think of it. We are living in a day which the prophets long to experience and did not experience. So that brings me to the last thing. And it's this, that the gospel of salvation should be considered by you because the angels joyfully watch concerning your salvation. Yes, the angels are involved. And if you notice in verse 12 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, it says this, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels longed to look. Angels longed to look at what? At this salvation that was coming to people from God. Now, what, what, what does that actually mean here? Well, it could mean, number one, that angels were kept from many of the mysteries of redemption. Uh, it does tell us in Mark chapter 16, uh, verse number 25, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. See, the angels were kept from some things. Also, this could mean, in our passage, that fallen, angel, fallen angels desire, in an evil, hostile sense, to watch in order to oppose the work of God concerning salvation. The only problem with that one is it doesn't fit the context. And then a third thing, it could mean that angels are intimately involved and interested in the unfolding work of salvation and are watching God's plan work out in us, even right now. Who are the angels? If we look at Scripture, in their work in reference to the Son, Jesus Christ, angels announce the conception of Christ, the birth of Christ. They announce the resurrection of Christ, the ascension and the second coming of Christ, the birth of of John the baptizer, the forerunner of Christ. They are, in Scripture, subject to Christ, where it says in 1 Peter 3, 22, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, angels after angels and authorities and powers have been subject to him. They shall execute the purposes of Christ. They shall accompany Christ at his second coming. And it says, of course, right here, they know and delight in the gospel of Christ. See, from these references, you can conclude that in God's creation, the 
these pure spirit beings are ranked very high and are quite awesome. However, angels were only created beings, so angels were not privy to all the mystery surrounding God's plan of redeeming mankind. Angels do play a part in God's work of salvation and remain interested in the unfolding work of salvation. The angels knew God would bring salvation to mankind through Jesus the Messiah, but they, and they even helped reveal that message to the prophets. Yet again, they did not know the details. So they eagerly and joyfully are watching God's plan unfold even till this day. They're watching it unfold. They, they know, the, of course, what we know. And they are, actually, it means that they stoop down to watch. It's just like when a parent stoops down to listen to their child because their child is only this far from the ground. Or they get on their knees. That's what it, the, the angels are right in the mix. They want to know what's going on. They're excited about it. They're excited about what God's doing. Now, just, just, just think about that for a minute. All right, because what we just experienced in the Word of God, maybe you don't know it, that if the prophets searched out this salvation and the Holy Spirit predicted this salvation and the apostles reported this salvation and the angels longed to know it, well then, how much more should we eagerly study to understand it to live it out, to live out its implications, and to proclaim it to those who have not yet heard it. See, that's our responsibility now that we see these things in in the Word of God, knowing how great and wonderful and awesome this salvation that has come through the prophets by the Spirit of God to the apostles right up until our days, and the angels long to know it. Man, we should be so excited about it. See the blessings of the Christian in this portion of Scripture have been packaged in terms of the new birth, the inheritance, the certainty of final salvation. These truths, when they permeate the mind of the believer, actually produce hope. They produce joy in suffering and in multifaceted trials that we're going to go through. It also produces in us an increased faith and a deeper love in, for Jesus Christ. That's what it does. So the prophets, the spirit, and the angels all give testimony to how great and wonderful our salvation is. And we have the rest of the story. I feel like Paul Harvey. You, some of you don't know who Paul Harvey is. Paul Harvey used to have a radio broadcast, only five minutes, and he would give some, throw out some obscure, obscure name, and, or even a name you knew, usually a name something you knew something about. And then he says, now let me tell you the rest of the story. And he would go into details you never heard about it. And he was very popular, Paul Harvey. And so, hey, you have the rest of the story. So you guys, I have no excuse. This salvation is the key point of this text. Number one, are you saved? Number two, if you're saved, are you living for Christ with your whole heart? That's what you have to ask yourself. And also, you should understand this. You are very privileged to be a Christian. Not everybody will become a Christian. 
So if you are, you have to take that great gift as something so special that you can never give it away. It's something you keep close to you, and then you live out what God's going to continue to do in your life. So I pray that that would be the case this morning, considering this text, because it is bringing us to the next part of our passage in verse number 13, where it says, therefore, he's concluding all this, and he's saying, prepare your minds for action. How can I prepare my mind? By everything that went before, keep sober in spirit. How can I do that? By everything went before, and then what? Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is the final salvation. When we drop off our bodies and we go into the presence of God, that's a reality for all of us, and we hold it by faith. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this morning I just pray that as we consider these things in, our, in the Word of God, Lord, that it would really grip us in our heart. It would squeeze our, our gizzard. And Lord, it would cause us to be overwhelmingly thankful for the grace that came to us. And then to know all the history and the people that were involved with telling the message and how the Spirit of God kept that message accurate through his servants in whom he moved upon. And then the word of God was written down and inscripturated so we can have it today, so we can carry it around in one book. Lord, that is an awesome thing to think about. So I pray, Lord, that we would never, ever take for granted of the things that we have because we're believers. Let us joyfully give an expression of our gratitude to you every single day because now we understand things that we didn't understand before and understand more than even your prophets. And so, Lord, we praise you for these things, and I ask you, Lord, to bless us Expand our understanding, and I pray these truths would get into our lives so we live holy lives, and we are used by you in the time you've given us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.